Okay. All right. <clears throat> That's to wake up your ears. Let these words sink into your ears. And it's taken from Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50, which I would like to read to start off. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into convulsion. With foaming at the mouth, and only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. While he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement. And it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. I know we come and we're come with the intent to listen to God's word and learn and worship God. But at the same time, we're busy people and we have a lot of things to think about and a lot of things can distract us. And I know because I usually sit right where you're sitting today. Um, but I would like to uh, just note that the disciples were pretty busy at this point. Um, I kind of through the different gospels kind of put this little chronology together and it's hard to follow chronology, but I have that Jesus sent out the twelve. And he gave them power over spirits and to heal and proclaim the kingdom. And they went out and they had a very successful ministry. And they come back and they're excited. But Jesus can see they're worn out. They're tired. And he kind of says, okay, let's try to get over here on the mountain. Go away and get over on the mountain. But then scripture tells us the people knew he was there. And they all came running after them anyway instead of getting some R&R. And Jesus uh, saw them all around and had mercy on them and began to teach and teach and teach and teach. Up to the point that... <clears throat> They um, then said, well, you know, we've been teaching, teaching, and these people don't have anything to eat. And, of course, we know the miraculous feeding there. And then after that, Jesus takes three of the disciples and goes up to the mount where he's transfigured. And we see uh, Moses and Elijah there in the same chapter of 9 of Luke. And then they come back down. So all of that is going on. They're busy also. In the midst of that, we're going to see in this passage that Jesus asked them to hear 
and think about a certain thing, and they missed it. And that's kind of sad. They missed what he was telling them to be thinking about. And uh, as we do, uh, do this, we hope that we'll learn to listen. But let us pray first. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day you've given to us. We thank you for your word. We, we are busy people. We are people distracted. We are people have a lot of things in our mind. We just pray today, dear Lord, that you'll let us to uh, look at your scriptures and learn from them, that we will understand what's going on in our mind. And then once we've done that, dear Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit will take those truths and write them in our hearts so we'll be following those and they will be part of our worship of you. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. So going back to comment now, verse by verse, uh, in verse 37, it says, On the next day they came down from the mountain. A large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I beg your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. They could not. And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? And as I go through scripture, I uh, dealt a lot, a lot of my life with people that were not believers and trying to talk to them about it. And maybe I captured from them kind of this skeptic way of looking at things. And, you know, I go into scripture and I say, why does Jesus say that? That's very strong words, you know. Uh, unbelieving for, I mean, among those he's saying it to is his disciples, right? Among those he's saying it to is this, uh, this man who had brought his son. Very, very strong words. Why does Jesus call them unbelieving and perverting? And I, I've, I've taken the liberty of going to the other gospel accounts parallel to the same event and drawn out what I think could be some of the explanation of that. First of all, there's room for to think that this, uh, as most people would at first start, but to think that this uh, rebuke is for the crowd and the scribes. If we go to Mark um, chapter 9, verses 14 through 18, we see that he said, When he came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, What are you discussing with them? So Jesus has this question in verse 17. And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. So we have two options here. And the first one, I'll admit, is not a real strong option. But Jesus had asked a question. What are you discussing with them? So there's a slight possibility that this father was answering Jesus' question. We're sitting over here having this discussion because I brought my son and he has a demon and your disciples couldn't cast it out. So we're sitting there discussing it. And I can just imagine the scribes going in and saying, oh, since you guys failed, let us give you some advice, you know, how this type of whatever. So that's one possibility. But again, probably and most likely, and I'll go with the second one actually, but uh, the, the, the father is just desperate. And his son needs to be healed. And so Jesus asks a question. He just doesn't even pay attention to the question. He goes right with his petition, though. And he says, you know, I brought my son to heal him, and they couldn't heal him. But there is the possibility there that in, in room for the crowd and for the scribes. 
to be uh, rebuked by Jesus for their lack of faith and, and being perverted. Uh, and then we can go actually to the disciples because that's kind of what hurt me the most is how does he say that to his disciples? You know, but again, going to parallel um, comments on this or, or, or accounts of this in the different gospels of going first to Matthew 17 verses 9 through 20. It re- we read, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. And uh, in verse, and going to Mark 9 also in verse 28, we see more about this. And it says, when he came into the house, the disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. So we can see that later, after, not in the crowd, Jesus talks to them about their lack of faith or littleness of their faith and the need for prayer. So that brings me to something that I think is important for us to remember, and I think of it as a triangle, a triangle of, of prayer. And sometimes we get the idea along the bottom line God has filled us with the Spirit, and we pray so powerfully and so forth that we pray for someone, and that will heal that person, and that will convict that person. But that's not the way it works. It's the, the, the triangle of prayer is we should pray and have faith in God and pray to God. And God is the one that heals, convicts, casts out spirits, or whatever. So I think it's helpful for us to remember that. Jesus is rebuked for lack of prayer and, uh, and faith. They were, again, their question was, why couldn't we cast it out? And Jesus said, you don't do anything. It's like God that does this. No? And lastly, of this rebuke, who, who, why this rebuke? We can look at the father of this young man. And again, now we'll go back to Mark, the, the account in Mark to get a little more on this. And Mark 9, 22 says, it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. And we'll pause right there because... Imagine that. Some of you I know have, are raising kids or have raised kids, and some of them were a little rough, no? And you really had to be watching after them. But imagine this father, whose the spirit came, and his purpose was to destroy his son. And he had to be watching. And I don't know if there were physical altercations or what he did, but he, I have to fight and wrestle. This powerful thing comes, and he wants to destroy my son. Continuing there in Luke 9, 42, in the second part, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. Well, let me, wait, let me first comment on that. Um, I had a question here. When Jesus says, um, when Jesus says, um, bring, bring your son here, when I looked at it and I said, well, Jesus is already taking action and is in the process of ridding this son of this uh, unclean spirit, or as it's called later, a demon. So he's already told him, come here, and we know what he's going to do, or we can imagine what he's going to do. So my question was, why does Jesus, having already said, bring your son here, and the man's in the process of bringing his son, why does Jesus allow the demon to slam the boy to the ground? And, and again, I will not try in one sermon to even begin to scratch between God's sovereignty and you know our liberty, or in this case, the rebellion of, of, of spirits. Uh, but we know that God is sovereign and he uses all things for his glory, you know. So they, they, maybe their last hurrah, ah, we're going to do it one more time before this happens. No? 
But in questioning why that would be, I noticed that up to this point, we see that the, the father of this young man had described what was happening. And he describes it several ways. And we saw one gospel gives more than the other, right, of description. People had heard his description. But when the demon came at that moment and slammed him to the ground, the people around saw what he was talking about. They had a physical demonstration of what this spirit was doing or this demon was doing to this young man. The power of it, the terrible part of it. And so I think in that God, Jesus allowed that so that people could know what he's doing. And again, my skeptical side, you know, if someone says I had a headache and I went to so-and-so and they prayed for me and my headache got better, I say, well, I wonder what kind of headache that was. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of internal to them, right? I say, what is that? But when we see something like this, then it's something external. And so Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. They were all amazed at the greatness of God. So I took a uh, beginner's course for philosophy, and I'll clarify that's all I took. I didn't take the following courses. No more, no questions, please. But one of the first things they described in philosophy is say we can divide up, if we've got a chart here, put a line, and we can talk about a lower floor and an upper floor. Let's start on that lower floor. And the lower floor is the physical world where animals live and humans live, and there's machines. And in this lower floor, we're cause and effect and natural laws as we study it and we try to understand it the lower floor we'd say wow that's knowable we can measure it test it detect it or whatever and we can use reason to understand the lower floor but again from a beginner's philosophy we have the upper floor on the upper floor is God and spirit the supernatural sometimes they refer to that as the metaphysical but we say that's unknowable that's only by faith. So what happens when Jesus does this? And I've just added one line. And Jesus comes down in the second, in the lower floor, and Jesus performs miracles. They see this spirit. They see this problem. And they see Jesus cast out the spirit and, and, and the boy be uh, returned to normal. So when Jesus performs miracles, the supernatural from the top floor comes down where it's observable and noticeable in the bottom floor. No, uh, God is now knowable. God is seen in Jesus. And again, just maybe trying to express that in secular terms. But that's what Jesus did. And we need to, when we share the gospel with people, explain that to them. Look, God came down. We believe not just by faith in something unknowable, but because it was come down. When we talk about revelation, for us as Christians, our Christian faith is based on God's revelation. And he comes down and does that. We can see that Jesus showed them the Father. If you notice, they glorified God. So John 14, 9, <clears throat> just before Jesus went to the cross, Jesus said to him, and talking to Philip, as we'll see, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So Jesus came with this kind of things and showed them the Father. He showed the Father in him, in himself. Um, in verse 9, and back in chapter 9, halfway through 43, there's an interesting change in what the text is saying. <coughs> while everyone, but while everyone was marveling at all that what he was doing, he said to his disciples, so this big group, this big crowd, 
for a moment, I want to say they're now concentrating and thinking about what's happened. And somehow or other, Jesus is able to direct himself to the disciples. And they're all marveling at what he's doing. He said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. Let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. So there's the moment of rejoicing and the greatness of this miracle and what Jesus is doing. But Jesus says, you need to let this sink in your ears. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. The one point I would like to make here is that we see in the Gospels as we read them that Jesus was not surprised by his crucifixion. There's secular writers that kind of, without bothering to study the historical account in the Gospels, go in and they say, oh, you know, we think Jesus was a little naive, and he thought if he kept teaching that after a while, everybody said, okay, Jesus, yeah, we go along with you, we're all going to accept and do that, and that he was surprised when he was crucified. Well, the only reason they say that is because, again, they have not studied the historical account in the Gospels. But Jesus, in this passage, he's telling them, um, let these words sink in your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. The subject of his crucifixion is really central to what's going on here. Uh, in the previous verses in chapter 9, we did not have that given in a sermon, but the transfiguration, if we look at verses 30 and 31, it says, And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So when Moses and Elijah came from glory and they're talking to Jesus, they don't say, oh, wow, Jesus, we really liked the Sermon on the Mount. That, that, really, that was sweet and that was really good and everything. And they don't say, oh, wow, man, that was fantastic the way you took the bread and multiplied it for the 5,000. Their subject, and it talks about, is they were speaking of his departure. They knew that what was next was Jesus was going to die, resurrect, and ascend into heaven and go back to glory where he had come from. So that's what they were speaking about. And then at the end, the verse after the passage that we've read in Luke 9, 51, says, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. So we have, I guess I can call it a sandwich, both at the, before this and after this, talking about his uh, departure or his going to Jerusalem and going to be turned over to the men. Um, and so in the middle, when he says, let this sink into your ears, but I was very saddened by what we read in Luke verse 945, but because it says, but they did not understand this statement. I think it's very sad that Jesus is saying, let this sink into your ears. It's kind of like a, a prelude. I'm not just going to say something. Pay attention now to what I'm going to say. And, and he says it, but they did not understand this statement. And it was concealed from them so that they could, would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. So th this is, as I looked at this, um, and I consulted with a theologian in the East Mountains, his first name is Frank, and uh, asked him about this, and he said, well, this is in Greek a passive verb, and so passive verb is not something they did, it's something that was done, and often uh, when people see that, you know, Bible students, they say, well, it's a divine passive, that God did that. And there's uh, re very respected teachers and pastors that have whole Bible, uh, a whole sermon or a whole study on why God concealed it at that point. And, of course, we know that, you know, they didn't understand it fully until <coughs> all the events were taking place, and then they fully understood it. But I, but I would like to, to say I have a problem with Jesus saying, please understand this, but I'm going to conceal it from you. 
It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. He's asking them to understand, to let it sink in their ears. So going back again, uh, we, we can follow in uh, when Peter confesses Christ, Jesus is the Christ, which um, Brian Anderson spoke on last Sunday. But going to the Gospel of, of Mark on that uh, account of when that was there, uh, it, I think, gives us some enlightenment how much they understood about this or how much they could understand about this. And again, this was previous to what we're reading in Luke 9 because, again, this was before uh, he came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. So in, Luke, in Mark 9, I mean, Mark 8, verses 31 through 33, it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he's, he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. As we read about that, we know that Peter did understand what was going to happen. But Peter comes in and says, No, 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 we, we're not going to let that happen. That's not going to happen. No way that's going to happen. No. And so it wasn't that he didn't understand what was going to happen. He wasn't too happy with it happening. So uh, at that point, you know, Peter's speaking before thinking quite a bit. Uh, he should have, you know, said, explain to me, Lord, how that is. No, explain to me why this is. But again, he just went that way and, uh, and, and Jesus rebuked him. Perhaps that's why they later were a little afraid to ask. I don't know. But, uh, but the point is they did understand that at that point. It was something they should have known. It's something they should have been thinking about. So it's sad to me that they did not understand it. They did not ask questions and so forth. Going back to our text in Luke 9, 46, it says an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. Okay. Which of them might be the greatest? And I think it's important to note right here that the disciples were not yet spirit filled. Why do I say that? If we go to John chapter 7 and look at verses 38 and 39, it says, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That's what Jesus said. In verse 9, we have some commentary by John, the author of the gospel. He says, But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the, the apostle clarifies that. Um, just to back that up, we go on to forward in, in the same gospel of John to chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, just before Jesus goes to the cross. And he says, I, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So we see that up to that point, and the Bible teaches that all, Jesus was all of God in Jesus. So when Jesus is physically with them there, he is being this helper that comes along, that helps, that teaches. Jesus is being that. And I point that out because we know now when we have become to become Christians and believe in God that because Jesus already went to the cross and paid the, the penalty for our sins, he went to the grave and resurrected gloriously and powerful with the power of the resurrection. 
and ascended into heaven and went before the Father and presented his sacrifice in the holy tabernacle in heaven and asked the Father to send the Holy Spirit when we believed we received the Holy Spirit at that moment. But the disciples were kind of in this special place right now. It was Jesus that's with them, uh, helping them and guiding them and teaching them. So they were at argument of them which might be the greatest. So take into account they were not spirit-filled. And unfortunate to say, even those of us who are spirit-filled, we can fall into that. No, who's the greatest? Why would it, they be saying that? Well, let me point out. There's 12 disciples that go out, and they uh, heal the sick, and the spirits are subject to them, and they announce the kingdom, and they're all very successful, and they come back. And out of those, three are taken with Jesus up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And they get to see the glory of glories. They get to see Jesus transfigured and Elijah and Moses and, and all of that. And nine of them are left behind, right? The three that went up there are still successful, demon-casting out disciples, if I may use that term, right? But the nine, when they come down, they find out these nine, they've kind of failed. You know, we went up successful. We came down successful. These guys were not able to cast out the demon. So they had a little room maybe to say, wow, I think we're going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you know. We're the can-do people, no? God's got his eyes on us. So, you know, again, uh, they're, they're not, they're, but again, more than that, you know, do we struggle with that? And, and I think if we don't, it's because we're so egotistical that we can't see it, no? But we struggle. I think I'm the greatest, or I should be the greatest, or I really am the greatest. So they want to talk about that. So we see here what Jesus would like them to consider. Right? Consider that I'm going to be turned over to men and be mistreated by them. They don't want to talk about that. They say, I want to, we, let's talk about who's going to be the greatest, and they're discussing that. So Jesus gets down where they are right now, patiently and lovingly says, okay, you want to talk about this? Let's talk about this. And I, sometimes I, I, I compare this to electronic maps, and I personally, when I need one, I use uh, Google Maps, not to advertise them, not that they need advertising that I know of. But Google Maps, you say, I want to go there, and they say, well, where you're at right now, you've got to do this to get there. That's very good. But if I take a donate, donut uh, you know, detour or I just get lost, then Maps kind of say, okay, but now where you're at right now, you've got to do something different because now you're in a different place. And spiritually, where are we at? And God's going to work with us where we're at to get us to where we're supposed to be, right? So Jesus gets down right there, and he says, okay, you want to, teach about, you want to talk about who's the greatest in verse, uh, for picking up our passage in Luke 9, verse 47. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood it by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. So Jesus says, you want to talk about being great? This is what you need to learn about being great. Okay, you need to learn being humble. You need to learn about being, uh, to be willing to serve. At that point, in one of the commentaries I read, probably other ones said that too, but I didn't read that many. But he said, in this passage from verse 37 to 50, the ones we're dealing with, we see four failures of the disciples, no? Four different failures. But perhaps giving a little break to John here, one of my, favorite of the disciples if you can have favorites but uh, a little break to him John answers and said master we saw someone casting out demons in your name 
And we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. And I would offer up that maybe John, on the light of what Jesus has just taught, is slightly confessional and saying, well, Jesus, uh, we did this, you know, and offering it up for Jesus to give an opinion about. And, of course, Jesus said to him, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. And maybe John said, oh, yeah, I kind of thought we had blown it there. Now what you've explained. I don't know if it went that way, but there, there is that possibility. There's a great irony here. Because as John says this, whoever these people were, whoever, it's actually a person, not an individual, not a group. Whoever this person was, he was able to cast out demons. And here's the nine that were not able to cast out that one. So a little bit of irony in the, in the fact that Luke puts it in that, possession, in that position. Though. So uh, what we see here is that God is working. Well, I would ask you guys, do you guys know who that person was? Why he was there? How was it he came up that he's going around and casting out demons in Jesus' name? We have no idea, right? We don't find it in Scripture. And I think the disciples were clueless as we are, you know. But we learn from that that God is working more than we realize. He's not limited to our little sphere and our little thing. He's doing his work, and he decides who he's going to use and not us. We have a practical exhortation uh, for us uh, in the book of Romans that I believe relates to this. And it says, don't, ch- charge, don't judge another believer whom God has accepted. We had the blessing this morning of seeing Luke Feldner in the service, which filled me with great joy. And I know he had shared this in a sermon um, a few months back, if not last year. But Romans 14, and this subject matter is different than than you know somebody casting out demons but there's a, an application rule here a principle that is helpful in Romans 14 1 through 4 it says now accept the one who is weak in faith but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions one person has faith that he may eat all things but he who is weak eats vegetables only the one who eats is to is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. So again, the principle here, God has accepted him. And then the the big principle is in verse 4, who are you to judge the servant of another? Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So it's not just any master Paul is saying the master that they have is our Lord. And if, uh, if, if this person is serving our Lord, then who are we to judge the servant of another? My wife and I lived quite a few decades in Mexico. And uh, in Mexico, you don't have to be making much money because of the economy. And there'll be people that make a lot less than you, and they're willing for a small amount of money to maybe come and help you clean house or um, help you in the yard or help you take care of kids or whatever. So it's fairly common to have, and they called them, you know, servants was what they called them. And one of the traditions in Mexico, especially in the smaller colonial towns, is people would get out every morning. They don't have these big sweeper machines like you have in the United States. So everybody would get out in the morning, and, you know, if you wanted to be a decent person in the neighborhood, you would get out and sweep the street in front of your house, you know, your little square out in front and make sure the street in front of my house is clean. If everybody did that, they had a clean street, right? So imagine if I went down that street one morning, and you have to get up early to do this, by the way. But imagine if I went down there and the person's sweeping, no, 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 
you don't sweep that way. That's not the way to sweep. Look, you need to sweep this way. Don't let me ever catch you again sweeping like that. And the next guy, well, no, that's not the way you scoop up the trash. You scoop up the trash like this. I think I wouldn't get to the end of the block. And the servants and their bosses would be saying, hey, get out of here. This is none of your business. No, it's kind of what Jesus is saying. If I have a servant, don't you be telling that servant, don't judge him. Because as the master, it says to his own master, he stands or falls. But it's not a one or the other. It's he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. So we don't have to tell people what to do or judge people as they tried to do with this person that was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Before we move into some application for this today, I would like to us kind of just hit the points and notice how much is happening in this verses. How much is God doing? Okay, you have to remember, we look at right now, we've got snow, but I mean, just think, for example, about the water cycle. We, we get water. God managed to make water as light as snow and transport tons of water from one place to the other and drop it, and, you know, without trucks or pipelines or whatever. And, you know, but at the same time, he makes rainbows and clouds and snow. And, you know, and so God just does so many things at one time. And we see in this passage that God and Jesus is working in so many ways. We, saw, we see that he rebukes the lack of faith. He demonstrates that he has power over demons and all things. He's showing the greatness of God in himself is what Jesus is doing. The greatness of God in himself. He's calling his disciples to understand God's plan of redemption. He's teaching the disciples humility and servitude versus greatness. He's teaching his disciples that God is working in many others. And in the middle of all that, he has the determined purpose of going to the cross to redeem us. So I'd like to make an application. And when I make an application, I was sharing this morning, when you start deciding I'm going to teach or I'm going to preach, one of the questions that could come up if you're honest with yourself is say, well, let's see now, am I, am I only going to teach the things that I've got down pat in my life and I live perfectly? Um, I would have a very short repertoire of sermons no? if I just said, oh, this is, I got this. You can look at my life and you'll know that's always right. So I understood that, no, because, I mean, if I'm preaching stuff and not doing it, then, you know, I would be a hypocrite, right? I mean, that's a possibility. But I understood that, you know, as we speak the word, you know, it's a little bit like prayer, but we're saying, hey, look, this is what God says. And it applies as much to me as to anyone else as we go to the application there. Uh, last week, Brian Anderson shared some earlier verses from Luke 9 about the same subject that, that we're talking about. And it was, again, related to Peter confessing that Jesus was the Christ and the Son of God. But in Luke 9, 21, and I want to see what, he, what Jesus joins together on this subject. In Luke 9, 21 through 23, so in a sense, I'm kind of following up on that sermon, but... Luke 9, 21, but he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So we understand that when Jesus is saying, hey, understand that I'm going to suffer, it doesn't just stop there. Let this sing into yours. I'm going to suffer. He's saying, you know what? You've got a cross to carry too. You have to deny yourself and follow me. 
So the application, I've chosen one. It, there's multiple ones, but I've chosen one, and I, I would ask, and uh, don't raise your hand, but how many people here know a verse in chapter 8 of Romans by heart that you can think of? Anybody? And you're welcome to smile if you know that verse. Not, uh, verse that's fine. And then I might uh, kind of obviously ask, how many of you are thinking of Romans 8, 28, right? And um, because, again, when we go back to the disciples, Jesus had told them, you're going to reign with me, right? So this thing of leadership and greatness is, wow, is my throne going to be bigger? There was some basis for that, okay? But they were concentrating on that and not concentrating on the suffering that Jesus had. So we like Romans 8, 28, okay? Let's go ahead and, well, uh, let's go ahead and read it, and I'll come back to it. But Romans 8, 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We say, man, cut that out, put it on the bathroom mirror, and the dashboard of the car, and my notebook when I open it up, you know, and my coffee cup. and That's, that, you know, everything's for good. We like that verse. That's a verse we like. But sometimes we're guilty of kind of buffet feeding on the word of God, you know. And if you let me loosen the buffet, I'm, I'm a little more mature now. But, I mean, it used to be the pies and the desserts and the donuts or whatever they have there, the cream and the puddings and not much broccoli and not much asparagus and all that kind of stuff. But So sometimes we're that way with the word of God. And that's kind of what the disciples were doing, though. Let's talk about who's the leader and not talk about how Jesus is going to suffer. So, again, we saw that, that, that Jesus himself and Luke kind of joined those subjects. Uh, going in Romans, and I have a clock here. I know that my time's almost up, so I'll resist the urge of giving you a whole Bible study in Romans, which I'd love to do. But in Romans chapter 6... Paul has wraps up has wrapped up in the first five chapters our sin and how we're saved by grace and based on God's sacrifice and it's by grace and it's not by works and beautiful scripture in five one having been justified by faith you know we have peace with God and then he talks about the historical significance and all that so he's got that settled but so then in six he kind of directs himself to okay now what do we do as Christians right. In six, and he starts out in six one, and I'll read one, two, and three of Romans six. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that the grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So Paul makes a statement. How do, should we who died to sin still live in it? Now he didn't have you know uh, these electronic apps and electronic mail and voicemail and Zoom meetings and all that kind of stuff. But God had used them, and he had gone through enough people discipling this that he knew what he had to say next, right? When he said, uh, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? And so then he goes and says, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? So we see Paul expanding totally in as Jesus did, saying Jesus died, then we have this to do, and he's over in Romans and doing that. So in, when we get to Romans 8, 28 in this section, he's kind of summarizing. It's almost towards the end of that section. In, in Romans 9, he's going to start something else. So again, we come on our favorite verse in Romans 8, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But it continues in verse uh, 29. And we don't pay as much attention to 29, some of us at least. And so it's an exhortation to, again, one specifically in this verse to think about which ones we grab and which ones we leave. But I think it has a lot of applications in our life. So 29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed 
to the image of his son so that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. And again, our human nature, spirit-filled, by the way, but our human nature is, hey, tell me about how all the things are going to work together for good. And it's easy for us to forget, hey, God wants me to conform to the image of his son. Is that my goal? And I would even offer up that being conformed to the image of his son is probably God's definition of good. When he says it works for good, it works to conform you to the image. It works to his purposes, which are good for us. So we need to realize uh, that we need to be conformed to his image. We need to ask um, Jesus to, um, get, as we go through his word, we need to, when we have something we don't quite understand, dwell on that and say, God, what is it here that I'm missing? What is it that I need to understand? And to close, instead of just saying amen and thank you, uh, as a prayer, I would like for us to sing a chorus. And this is going to be interesting because we're going to do it a cappella. The, the music group uh, helped us. But if you started early and noticed the first chorus, they kind of rehearsed us with this. But this is an old-fashioned chorus old from long ago that's called To Be Like Jesus. And I think it kind of expresses what Romans 8.29 is saying to be like Jesus. And again, the conversation in Luke where Jesus is saying, you also got to carry your cross. And so I would invite you, and if you want to, we'll stand and this will, we will, uh, this will be the way we close. We're going to sing it. So think it, sing it and pray about it and think about it as you sing it. And um, it goes like this, to be like Jesus, to be like Jesus. All I ask to be like him all through life's journey from earth to glory. All I ask to be like him, to be like Jesus. To be like Jesus, all I ask to be like him, not in a measure, but in its fullness, all I ask to be like him. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that, that you would give us the intent of our hearts to to listen to the things that we should attune our ears to to be listening to what you want to talk about in our daily lives and that we can put that into action in carrying our own cross and to be like Jesus. Amen.